You're listening to Evidence-Based IHP, the podcast that draws connections from research to practice. Rachel, I'm really excited about this episode. Should we introduce it? Hey, Amanda. Sure. Today's episode features Ashley McClellan, a third-year student in the MSN program studying to become a pediatric nurse practitioner. Ashley talked with us about a project she worked on in collaboration with the team at the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. Stick around at the end of the episode for a bonus discussion on imposter syndrome. All right. Well, welcome, Ashley, to the EBIHP podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. To start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience at the IHP. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my name is Ashley McClellan, and I am a registered nurse and a third-year student in the DEN program on my way to becoming a pediatric nurse practitioner. That's really awesome. That's really cool. Can you tell us who you worked with on this study? So really, it was a whole team of people um, brought together and organized by Michael Pistoner, who is a pediatric allergist, as well as the director of the Food Allergy Prevention Program at Mass General. In addition to Dr. Pistoner, here from the IHP, Dr. Rebecca Hill was my scholarly project advisor. And then there was a whole team of folks, including, you know, clinicians, dietitians, lactation consultants, nurses, researchers, students, interns, um, statisticians, and others who kind of were all a part of this project. Wow. That sounds like a really big team. Like, what was it like working with all of those people? I mean, it's just such, it's such a wonderful experience to have had as a student and to be able to see the ways in which a project like this, that is really, you know, a small piece of such a larger and bigger effort all comes together. And especially over the course of this past year, to be able to join by Zoom these different meetings and to hear snippets and pieces of the ways in which this intersection of research and advocacy all comes together. And then to be a part of really seeing this actually hit the ground and have an impact was such a great experience to have as a student. Great. Thank you so much. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the study? Uh, Maybe just give us the overview, the main ideas of what you guys were looking at and the, the main takeaways. Yeah, absolutely. So the project I joined, you know, as I said, was a small piece of a much bigger effort, all of which is related to advancing knowledge and practice regarding food allergy prevention. And so, you know, with the ultimate goal of increasing knowledge, specifically around the 2017 National Institutes of Allergy Infectious Disease Addendum Guidelines for the Prevention of Peanut Allergy, this, you know, specific effort really sought to create like a curriculum whereby staff from the MGH newborn nursery, which included newborn hospitalists, nurses, and lactation consultants, were all going to be educated on up-to-date feeding and prevention strategies and trained ultimately to educate families about the guidelines prior to the hospital discharge. You know, this project was designed as a quality improvement project and was really just the first step of this was to conduct a needs assessment whereby we would like establish pre-intervention baseline understanding of knowledge and practice as it relates back to those guidelines. And so it was really about here in the work of the team that I joined in order to help develop that survey tool to disseminate among the nursery staff. Can you tell us a little bit about that survey tool? 
Yeah. So the survey tool itself asked about a number of different components and captured, I think, in a nice but finessed way, um, some nuance between both awareness of these guidelines, attitudes about the guidelines, and then in like a fun way, tunneled it and asked specific information to really assess the depth of knowledge and understanding about the way that these guidelines really intersect with practice. So it was both how familiar are you? And then some questions that have right answers to them. And so really, really got it whether or not the responding clinicians had heard of them, but also if they knew them well enough to implement them as directed, and then some attitudes. And I think that one of the pieces that was interesting coming into this work prior to coming to the IHP, I had a background in lactation counseling. And so one of the interesting intersections between this work for food allergy and the NIAID addendum guidelines is that there are longstanding guidelines with respect to exclusive breastfeeding duration. And so one of the interesting questions that the survey tool was hoping to elicit a better understanding of is the way in which, you know, these on their face conflicting clinical practice guidelines may be playing out in in terms of how attitudes about the new allergy prevention guidelines may be interpreted. It was really interesting to read about those newer updated guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about like what the best practice is now for early detection in pediatrics in terms of preventing allergies and early introduction to these foods? In general, like food allergy is a topic of increasing clinical significance, right? Especially within the field of pediatrics. One of the things that I I learned during the process of the scholarly project is that, you know, the CDC who tracks information regarding incidents of food allergy actually reports that between, I'm pretty sure it's like 1997 and 2011, the prevalence of food allergy among children increased actually 50%. Um, And during a similar time, the, the prevalence of childhood peanut allergy Uh, actually more than tripled. And so unlike milk allergies or egg allergies, which are more commonly outgrown as the child ages, peanut allergy in particular is rarely outgrown and often associated with like really severe IgE-mediated allergic reaction, including anaphylaxis. And Mm so, you know, learning this information in the nursing program, seeing the relevance for practice, and then coming into this food allergy team, it's really been exciting to understand the ways in which this is an area where the science has really evolved dramatically in recent years. And so, you know, for a really long time, like even as recently as 2008, the prevailing wisdom was to delay the introduction of these allergenic foods and to avoid peanut in the diet of both uh, pregnant and breastfeeding mothers. And so for years, this was the practice. And so you'd have children completely avoiding peanuts or other potentially allergic foods, during which time the rates of food allergy just continued to climb. And so it wasn't until 2015 when the LEAP study, which was its learning early about peanut, the LEAP study, which is a landmark study. It was the first randomly controlled trial to study early as opposed to delayed peanut introduction as a preventative strategy. And this study found that by introducing peanut-containing foods to high-risk infants, that that practice was actually not only safe, but can reduce the development of peanut allergy by as much as 80%. 
Subsequently, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease very quickly published an addendum to their guidelines regarding peanut allergy prevention, which is, you know, now recommending peanut introduction as early as four months of age in certain high-risk infants. The need for the intervention and the reason for sort of some of this work is that despite like really rapid and broad adoption of this new data into clinical practice guidelines, there's been a much more tepid response and much slower change when it comes to actual clinical practice. The survey tool that we developed was really just about our attempt to kind of take the pulse of the hospital team to find out what people know about these guidelines, how well they know the guidelines, what they think about the guidelines, and to, you know, really nuance and understand the current practices in place that relate to food allergy prevention. That is really fascinating. And just like a shocking statistic that there was such a large increase in food allergies and peanut allergies. And from what I hear you saying, it's almost as if some of that is attributed to trying to hold it off and trying to not introduce children early. Looking to your survey, what were some of the things that you found? Like, what were these key takeaways? Why were some clinical staff like maybe resistant to introducing these new guidelines when the research is showing that it's so much safer? Yeah, it's a great question. The data we have back and or at least had back at the time that I was finishing my scholarly project was still only partial data. We had data back from the newborn hospitalists and from the lactation consultants that work in the newborn nursery. And so, you know, it was admittedly a very small sample size with like an N of, I think it was 19. And what we found was interesting, but uh, consistent with some similar data that's been conducted of, you know, other uh, pediatric healthcare providers at national level. And, you know, when it came to the question of knowledge, just how familiar were these uh, providers with the addendum guidelines, most respondents were not aware of the current peanut allergy prevention guidelines at all. So 11 of the 19 respondents, or about 70%, were not aware of them at all. Some were aware, but not comfortable implementing them. And only three of the respondents were both aware of and comfortable implementing the guidelines. Interestingly, the data around actual practice is where things got really exciting. So of the like various types of postpartum guidance and counseling that are provided by the respondents, the the hospitalists and the lactation consultants, I think it was all but one of them uh, responded that they either rarely or never provide information relating to risk factors for food allergy. And similarly, all but one of them responded that they rarely or never provide information regarding the early introduction of peanut for high-risk infants. So practice, this is not happening, right? Even among those who are familiar, it's not happening. But, and this is what was really cool, a quarter of respondents report that they are providing instruction regarding of solid food introduction. And so I think those two things taken together suggest there's like a really great opportunity for advocacy here where, you know, the, the nursery staff and the lactation consultants are two of the first members of the healthcare team to be having these conversations about infant feeding um, in the postpartum period. And it's already part of their scope of practice. So even though, you know, majority of these babies are discharging from the nursery by the second, you know, or fifth day of life and conversations around any solid food introduction don't typically happen until between four and six months, these providers already consider this to be something that is part of their scope of practice. And now the opportunity is just to provide them with this additional information 
to round out their knowledge of certain risk factors for for developing a peanut allergy in the first place. Yeah, one of the things in the paper that I just loved reading was just how practical this is. Like there's no really extra work for them. They they're already doing having these types of conversations or just changing the information or, or a little bit more information that they're giving when they have these conversations. And it gets the parents right at the beginning. Yeah. And it just seems like, you know, it, that this is a model that could be put into so many other hospitals and that would work really well regardless of, you know, hospital resources or where you're located. So I just thought that was very well done, well thought out. Yeah, it is. I think it represents a really exciting opportunity to get this information to families early on and, you know, appreciating that the window of time to get some of these, you know, potentially allergenic foods into the diet of these high-risk kids is so small. We're talking about only a matter of weeks. And so starting this conversation as soon as possible may actually be really critical for not missing some of these high-risk kids. Can you explain to our listeners what is considered to be a high-risk infant? So this is where, you know, the one downside of the addendum guidelines is that they can they can be a little complicated. The addendum guidelines stratify risk um, into three tiers. Patients who are considered to be at high risk of developing food allergy are those with severe eczema, egg allergy, or both. And it's in that highest risk group that the recommendation is to either screen for IgE to actually do serum screening ahead of time in advance of that. And if necessary, to actually first introduce that food in a supervised setting, similar to if not being an actual like oral food challenge where the patient is introduced to that allergen in a supervised setting with medical staff available in case there is a full-blown anaphylactic reaction at that time. For those infants, the introduction timing is recommended to occur somewhere between four and six months. The kind of next category of kids are those who are considered moderate risk. And so those are the infants who have mild to moderate eczema. For those kids, it's recommended to introduce peanut-containing foods somewhere around six months and based on the developmental readiness of the child to tolerate solid foods. And then beyond that, it's kind of the the low-risk or no-risk kids. That's everyone else, no history of eczema or any other signs of food allergy. And that then the recommendation is to introduce peanut-containing foods sort of as age-appropriate and in accordance with family preference or cultural practices. So your uh, needs assessment that you did was actually a pilot study and part Mm -hmm. of a bigger project. Could you tell us a little bit about the bigger project and where you and Dr. Pitzner are hoping that all of this goes? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think there are some immediate implications for this particular QI project. So there's still the outstanding work of getting the results back from the nursing staff at the MGH nursery to, you know, really round out that understanding of the nursery team as a whole and the multiple routes by which families are exposed to some of this early information around food allergy on the heels of which we have the actual intervention to run. So the idea here is that this needs assessment is kind of step one of establishing a baseline of knowledge and practice to be followed quickly with the actual intervention. The educational component and piece is actually something that's already developed and will need some tweaking to match the needs that are identified in our needs assessment. But it was prepared by um, a senior resident at MGH who prepared a similar, you know, CME style webinar for her fellow pediatric 
pediatric residents when doing their allergy rotation. And so it'll be a a similar intervention tool that'll be made available to the nursery staff, at which point then we'll need to loop back and conduct, you know, a post-intervention assessment to assess whether or not the educational intervention was actually effective and whether there's increased awareness of knowledge of and then practice of implementing these guidelines. So that's specific to this QI project. But then on the heels of that, then are some really fun opportunities for expanding this work more broadly. And so part of the work is always seeking funding. So there's a number of grant proposals that are out and open right now. But one project that may be run in partnership with the National Peanut Board is to conduct a similar needs assessment survey of pediatricians, which would be conducted in part and through the American Academy of Pediatrics. And here, you know, the audience would be a more traditional audience for this type of work. I think often it's pediatricians or pediatric primary care providers, including, you know, pediatric NPs who are thought of as really being on the front lines of having these early conversations with families. They're the ones who will classically know about the risk criteria. And yet they're the ones that are commonly surveyed when looking at some of the barriers for implementation. So that's one approach is to kind of expand this QI project, take this out sort of to a national uh, body of pediatric primary care providers. And then similarly, there is some exciting conversations that the team is um, having in the coming weeks with the Mass Department of Public Health and specifically with WIC, just appreciating what a critical role the WIC program has in terms of reaching such a broad community of young parents with young children and how their staff dietitians and nurses and clinicians are really such an important part of these early conversations around infant feeding and, and infant nutrition. And so being able to figure out how we can get some of the same educational resources to their team. So one mechanism for creating this bridge and this opportunity is the fact that the 2020 dietary guidelines that have just been published include those 2017 NIAID addendum guidelines within them. And so now that these guidelines have kind of been codified in that way into standards of practice, the work to make the case for why this is so critical has already been done. And now we really just get to figure out, okay, so now that this is now that this is written, how can we actually just go ahead and implement the rollout to as broad an audience as possible? Two really exciting opportunities on the advocacy front. And then, you know, additionally on the research front, I think that we've learned a lot from the initial pilot. We've made some significant improvements in terms of like how the actual survey tool is built and designed within REDCap. And so I think that the next step of that lies actually with some of the researchers um, on the food allergy team to think about next steps for designing sort of a perspective randomly controls trial to really get a robust and, and rounded out assessment and understanding of both dietary exposures, but environmental exposures in a cohort of infants over time. And then to follow them through the first few years of life to see where they are with respect to growth and development allergy prevention, and then some of the other measures, including, you know, other atopic disease, both with eczema, as well as environmental um, and respiratory allergies. Lots of, lots of ways that this work can go moving forward. 
really puts into perspective just how big of a change this is. Like it's a whole ecosystem that has to be adjusted to make sure that these guidelines are being met. So in case anyone had any delusions that the way evidence-based practice works is that someone publishes a guideline and then everyone immediately starts following it, that's not the actual realistic case. A lot of work has to go into just what you're doing, like getting the word out, getting people educated, making sure that the guidelines are actually being implemented. It's no small undertaking. Ashley, you dropped a couple of acronyms. So I'm going to have you uh, define them for folks who may not be familiar with them. First, can you um, just quickly explain what WIC is for anyone who maybe does isn't aware of it or has never had to use it? Yes, absolutely. So WIC is um, Women, Infant, and Children. And WIC offices are a, it's a special supplemental nutrition program. WIC is the program that often will provide formula for families who cannot afford formula. And in addition to actually just providing the the money to get the food, their programs support young families with a ton of just nutritional advice and counseling. They have lactation consultants on their staff who will help moms with breastfeeding. They have dietitians who will help with healthy food choices and really just serve such a critical role in terms of providing this setup for good early childhood nutrition. It's one of the state's more successful programs that really is, you know, combating health disparities. And so it's actually reassuring to hear that, you know, these guidelines, it's going to hit every kid and not just, you know, select groups of kids who are lucky enough to be born in a certain demographic. The other acronym is QI. So you are our first podcast guest who's to talk about a QI project. So our, some of our listeners may not know what that is. Go ahead and fill them in. Yeah, absolutely. So QI stands for quality improvement. And it is really, I mean, a fascinating lens through which to view clinical practice. I think it it is in and of itself an opportunity for thinking critically about not just what we do, but why we do it. And I, you know, in past lives have had the opportunity to be a part of different quality improvement projects in different clinical settings where I've practiced. Also, um, through the IHP with the Institute's IHI Open School Chapter, the IHI Open School Chapter is sort of a, a club on campus that's affiliated with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement which is really a local organization with a global impact, but who does a ton of work championing really the science behind quality improvement and the approach and process by which healthcare quality can be measured, quantified, right? And then worked upon for better outcomes, for patient satisfaction, for lower cost, a number of different ways. But yeah, so QI is quality improvement. One of the things that the way that I've understood it as that distinguishes it from a lot of other research projects is that what you're testing are the systems and the processes and not you're not doing an intervention on a patient. And so that's kind of what separates intervention type studies from quality improvement type studies. We do see it a lot in nursing. Yeah. So whenever I'm working with nursing students, it's very often a QI project. Yeah. And practically speaking, ends up being a nice way to get tangible work underway without needing to go through a formal IRB process. There are implications on the back end with respect to publication and oftentimes different steps are needed before you can take some of that work to scale. But at least for us in this year, it was a nice opportunity since we were working with system change at a local institutional level, an opportunity for us to actually just begin doing some of this work without needing 
to go through the full and formal IRB approval process. So important because in healthcare and academia, things can move very slowly if you don't find a way to make them go faster. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm curious what the current status is with peanut allergies and the rate of these allergies, if it's starting to go down, if you're seeing that, or do you think that this kind of lag in getting this information out there is kind of keeping these numbers pretty stagnant? That's such a great question, Rachel. I I don't actually know the answer to that. It wasn't really a part of the scope of what I was looking at. And I think that one of the things that's tough, given the timing of when the guidelines have been published and the lag in terms of the data around incidence and prevalence of food allergy in general, like it's, I think only as recent as 2018 that we have the data on prevalence info. And so I don't think there's been enough time between the publication of these new guidelines and the most recent data on food allergy rates to know yet if there's a measurable impact with respect to these guidelines. But that is a really really good question. That definitely makes sense. I I love research as a tool for advocacy and, you know, awareness. And I just, I think this is such a cool project and it's awesome. I'm studying to be a speech language pathologist right now, and I'm really interested in infant feeding and swallowing. And um, so this is just so important. Yeah. Yeah. Another group of clinicians for the team to target with awareness and education. (laughs) Completely. Completely. Give us the story of how this opportunity came about for you. The opportunity here really kind of came about because I started my advanced practice clinical training with Dr. Pissner in his food allergy clinic back in January of 2020. And so in addition to the work that he does specific to advocacy and to research, he also provides clinical care to patients. And so I had started the semester with him in clinic, you know, and really through it, just like gained such experience and insight into caring for children with food allergies, came to appreciate like the complexity of atopic disease and just like the considerable a psychological burden that having a food allergy can have both on young children as well as their families. When COVID uh, affected our ability to continue in clinical placements in March of 2020, that opportunity for connection with his team and patients had to be put on hold for the time. But I was invited to kind of stay on and join his research team there were you know, no shortage of opportunities I would have loved to take advantage of. But I think given my background in lactation counseling and the identified target of lactation consultants in the newborn nursery, this seemed like a really nice opportunity to join this group on this particular facet of the project. Earlier, you mentioned having worked on QI projects before. So Going into this, you weren't really a novice researcher. You had done some work before. Do you feel like your earlier experiences helped inform your work with this study? Yeah, definitely. Being curious about quality improvement in general, I think definitely made my enthusiasm for this opportunity all the more great. The the past work that had been done was certainly different. Um, You know, one of the projects that I had worked with previously had to do with wait time boards and communicating expected wait times to families in a pediatric primary care practice. Another QI project had involved the rollout of a social determinants of health screener to families in a pediatric setting. 
nothing at all related to food allergy and certainly not related to staff behavior. But I think in general, the PDSA cycle, right? The plan, do, study, act process was one that was familiar. And so it was a familiar sort of cycle of doing something, implementing it, looking back at it. What did we learn? Let's change something. Let's do it. Let's look at it. What did we learn? And so this repetitive work um, that we're seeing play out first among hospitalists, then among lactation consultants, next among nurses, then more broadly comparing nurseries, then taking it to the level of national pediatricians, hopefully doing something at a similar national scale through WIC. I mean, all of these become fun opportunities to kind of do the work, try something, change something, reflect. And that process I find really fun. In the library, we're big fans of iterative design. And I feel like QI and iterative design go very much hand in hand. They're in the same spirit, even though they're yeah. often happening in very different environments. Absolutely. So you had Dr. Pissner was the sort of the mentor for the research project. You also had um, Rebecca Hill, who one of our incredible faculty members was your project advisor. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, working with them on a personal level? And I'm particularly interested in how you felt they best supported you throughout this process. Being able to jump in and join the team at MGH was just such a treat and such a gift. I really appreciate it, especially in this year, which was just a year unlike any other year, the ways in which Dr. Pissner, I think, really skillfully organized and coordinated and kept a team of individuals who, you know, many of whom have never actually met one another in person. But working together and collaborating together, despite all having other clinical priorities and roles. And so this is no one's full-time job. And yet we met weekly. The date and time of the week often had to change based on clinical needs and overlap. But we would get together as a team once a week. The team that came together on any given week would vary based on how and where projects were overlapping at any given point in time. But we would get together, we'd collaborate. I think one of the most wonderful things is the way in which, you know, even some of the undergraduate interns and volunteers he has part of his team were just handed the reins and empowered to do the work and to try. And, you know, as a, as a student in this work and as a volunteer to the team to be, you know, given permission, go ahead, reach out to WIC, see where you get, go ahead, I'll join the call when you need me. And really just empowering every single person who's part of the team, not just to be operating like the full extent of their license or full scope of practice, but really just to dive in and engage and stay involved at the level and to the depth that made sense for them at any given point. So to really kind of jump in as a volunteer, but immediately be kind of feel part of the core team and made to feel central and be empowered and entrusted with a lot of this work was was really wonderful. And I think that, you know, one of the fun details of how he makes that all happen that I, I would not have thought of previously, but one of the lovely things is like the team also gets together once a week, not for work conversation, but for like a coffee hour. And so, you know, this finding ways, even when everyone is living through a pandemic and working remotely and at home, ways of recreating the feel of what it's like to be part of a team and a group of people doing something together. And so, you know, not that clinical conversation doesn't come up or that topics won't overlap during that time, but really this just being a space for team building and the importance of continuing to support teams when working together, even if it's dispersed and remote was really wonderful. So yeah, that was just such a great opportunity to feel supported, 
to, um, to be brought into the work. And then on, you know, the flip side and like the connection back to the work and the demands of the scholarly project itself and to be able with Dr. Hill to just email questions back and forth to, you know, present drafts of the paper or sections of the paper and say, ah, you know, like I'm, I'm struggling here. How does this connect back to that? I'm too far in this to be able to see what I'm missing and to be able to have someone come with fresh eyes to this work with such profound clinical insight in particular into, you know, infant feeding and to be able to say like, these are the dots, this is the connection, you know, like here's the additional missing piece to this puzzle that's going to make this readable to somebody who's not as deep into it as I had gotten, I think was just such an incredible support. One thing I really appreciate about uh, the IHP is the emphasis on interprofessional practice and collaboration and that teamwork. It sounds like that is something that was not only so pivotal to your scholarly project, but also just to this, this advocacy effort and noticing that if things aren't working on a systems level, we have to reach all of the different people that might come into contact with new parents and make sure that they're getting this information. That's really cool that um, you had that experience and that, you know, a big part of it is that that team effort and that interprofessional collaboration. Yeah. Ashley, what would you say? And you kind of alluded to some of the challenges, of course, of trying to do this during a pandemic. What would you say is the biggest challenge that you faced while working on this research project? You're, you're absolutely right in mentioning the pandemic as being kind of one of the obstacles of this year. And I think that had the year looked different, had we been together in person, I think that there, there would have been, it's tough to say because there would have been different challenges if this was everyone functioning as normal. I think for me personally, uh, this last year presented, you know, the challenges of not just like a different clinical flow, but a different academic flow for several months. We, we didn't, have the opportunity to be practicing clinically. And so I think one of one of the biggest challenges in doing this work is being each semester a little further into the program and yet feeling so much like an imposter in the work that I'm doing. And like, at what point are they going to realize that I don't actually know what I'm talking about? And at what point is this team of expert clinicians going to realize they've got some student here trying to, you know, pass off this work as legitimate. And I think that that might go hand in hand with some of the the questions about what I learned about myself through this process is that I think I, I realized I actually knew a lot more than I was giving myself credit for. And that actually the perspective of coming to this work, not as an allergist, right? And not as a hospitalist or practicing lactation consultant, but just that the variety and diversity of experiences I had had thus far was actually exactly the thing that was needed in this moment and for this team. And the, the time I had, because I had this extra scholarly project course built into my schedule actually afforded me the opportunity and the time in my schedule to focus on this work and to do this research and be part of kind of advancing the project and and keeping the communication going. I mean, it's like certainly intimidating to send the email to a group of senior clinicians and directors of divisions and say like, hey guys, I really need your focus and attention here because we've got this survey tool that's ready to go. I just need your sign off. But to feel not just empowered to do that work, but supported in doing that work and and to just feel how respectfully and cordially this this group of, of people worked together was really tremendous. It was a great learning experience. Yes, I'm not sure that impost, the imposter syndrome feeling ever 
actually goes away more so that perhaps you realize that everyone else is having the same feeling and that it's a very like equitable experience. Uh, That's, that's been my takeaway so far from our, our podcast interviews thus far. I don't know, Rachel, if, if you felt similarly. I agree. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is real. And I think the older I get, I realize that it's, um, yeah, it's mutual. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot Mm -hmm. of people feel it, but I think that, I think that kind of goes back to that, like interprofessional collaboration idea. Like we don't know everything, but like you said, you know what you know, and you have your, your scope of practice and that's what you bring to the table. And by coming together and all of us having our own specializations, we're able to solve these problems. Right. Right. What advice do you have for other DEM students who may be starting or thinking about their scholarly projects about how they should tackle it? Mm. You know, I feel so fortunate that this opportunity to engage in research and to engage in quality improvement that would actually lend itself nicely to a scholarly project had fallen in my lap in the way that it did. It's not lost on me what incredible incredible privilege there was to have been in a clinical placement with someone who is doing this work. I think that my advice for those looking for a project or unsure about where to begin would be to look for the people already doing work. Ideally, you know, maybe someone doing work that interests you. So much of the initial heavy lifting had already been done by this team by the time I joined it, the defining of a scope, the specification of a target audience. And so, you know, we at the IHP are so lucky to have faculty who also practice and and many faculty who also research. And so to start there um, with work that's already underway, it served me well in being able to complete the scholarly project within a semester. The other thing with respect to the timing is that a lot of the work that I did, I was actually doing before enrolling in scholarly project, which helped alleviate a lot of the stress of being enrolled in that course. By the time I signed up this last fall for the class, I was already several months into the work with the team, had a good sense of where the project was going, had a clear sense of what was likely to be accomplished by the time I was done. And I think that being you know, the scholarly project is responsive in that way in terms of you can only speak to what you can speak to. As we talked about earlier, a lot of these research projects go on over the course of years and don't always accommodate the narrow window of time that we as students have to overlap with them. And so even within this project was able to say, here's the data we have to date and here's what's still outstanding. And here's what we can say about what we know. And here's what we still have to learn. And I think realizing that going into it was really helpful because it removed a lot of the stress of needing to feel like something was neatly packaged and concluded by the time my project was done. How do you feel working on this study has impacted your own clinical practice, even not related to to food allergy or um, maybe what you've been doing recently in clinicals? Yeah. I mean, I think both ways, right? Like I think that this has not only added such depth to my understanding about food allergy, its development, its prevention, and what my role as a pediatric primary care provider will be in supporting families through those early months until allergenic foods are on board. So it has both helped informed my future clinical practice, but I think it has also been a nice model of how to incorporate research and advocacy into clinical care. 
And so being able to see the models of so many of you know, these colleagues who have been part of this team and the way in which they're doing this research, doing this advocacy in addition to the clinical work that they do and just having so many wonderful models of how to balance both of those interests has been a really fun and hopeful thing to be able to realize that I can do both moving forward. I love that you said that. I think that's such an important like idea because one thing that or one theme that I've kind of heard in literature and just at least in, you know, the field of communication sciences and disorders is this idea that there's a divide between the clinical world and the research world. And the implementation isn't always there. Uh, it doesn't always translate over to the clinical world. As a growing clinician, I, I, I also have a huge passion for research and see it as a tool for advocacy. And understand the, like you said, it, it really is important for clinicians to also be in that world a little bit and to understand and to to advocate for things that they see in their daily practice that really need to be changed or looked at. Absolutely. Ashley, what resources or organizations would you point people to if they would like to learn more about peanut allergy or food allergy more generally? The Mass General Food Allergy Center has a tremendous website with a number of current resources that are there both for for families of children with food allergies as well as for providers um, looking to support children with food allergies or young families in the prevention of food allergy development. I'm hopeful that I can get you guys links both to the specific NIAID 2017 Addendum Guidelines and the 2020 Nutrition Guidelines both of which are, you know, tremendous resources regarding best current practice when it comes to healthy early infant feeding, as well as food allergy prevention. And then, you know, there are some fantastic upcoming resources through the Food Allergy Center that are really aimed at closing the gap in access to pediatric food allergy subspecialists one of the factors that prevents a lot of these kids from actually being able to adhere to the guidelines is not being able to get seen by a pediatric food allergist in time. And so in order to mitigate some of those barriers with respect to access, the the food allergy team is working on building a clinician support tool that will be available to offer at the elbow support for clinicians trying to decide, is this the right kid in whom to encourage home introduction? Is this a kid that first needs screening? And if so, some handholding through the implementation of these guidelines for providers. And so I can try to get you guys access to some of those links and resources to make available with the podcast. Excellent. We will put any links you give us into the show notes. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yes, thank you. Cannot thank you enough. Thanks for having me. Quick addendum to the interview. Ashley needed a little more time to pick out her song for the playlist. She ended up choosing Allergies by Bare Naked Ladies from their album Snack Time. Wicked good song. You can find it as well as songs from our other guests on our collaborative playlist on Spotify or YouTube. So pick the app that you prefer. And the links to those are in the show notes. So now, Rachel, imposter syndrome has come up in a couple of our episodes so far, and I know it will come up in future episodes. So I thought we could do a deep dive on the topic to help us and our listeners understand it better. I think that's a great idea. It's a term I've heard tossed around a lot recently. I remember first hearing it in undergrad when talking with a professor about applying for graduate school. I remember going home, Googling it and going, yep, that sounds like me. 
but I never really understood it fully. So I'd love to unpack it some more for our listeners. Oh, good. Because I have a ton of notes ready to go and I don't want them to go to waste. Let's do this. Imposter phenomenon, aka imposter syndrome, was first coined by Dr. Pauline R. Clance and Dr. Suzanne A. Imes all the way back in 1978. And they described it as the psychological experience of believing that one's accomplishments came about not through genuine ability, but because of luck, having worked harder than others, or having manipulated other people's impressions, leading to feeling like a fraud or a phony. So it's not a new phenomenon by any means, but it seems to have exploded in popularity recently. If you feel like you've been hearing a lot about imposter syndrome the last few years, I have some good news. It's not all in your head. Well, the imposter syndrome is all in your head, but your perception of its popularity is accurate. Discussions of imposter syndrome in the media have exploded the last several years. From 2018 to 2019, websites like Psychology Today, Medium, and Forbes.com were publishing anywhere from 150 to 200 articles a month on imposter syndrome, articles which were then shared profusely on social media. It seems like this phenomenon has entered the zeitgeist and is really resonating with people. That makes so much sense. While the prevalence of imposter syndrome in the population as a whole is not well understood, many studies have been done on specific populations like medical students and graduate allied health students, including occupational therapy and audiology students. A 2019 scoping review by Gottlieb et al. identified rates of imposter syndrome in medical students ranging from 22 to 60 percent. The 2020 pilot study by Shmulian et al. showed an imposter syndrome prevalence of 37.5 percent in those OT and audiology students. Additionally, a 2019 systematic review by Bravada et al. found mixed evidence with regards to age and gender. Some studies show imposter syndrome decreases with age. Some show that it does not. Some studies say it's more common in women, and some say men and women both experience it at similar rates. The important thing to remember is that the way someone experiences this phenomenon might differ based on their background and their environment. And we can't assume that someone does or does not have imposter syndrome based on their demographics or professional field. So true. What works for coping with imposter syndrome for one person might not work for another. Bravada's systematic review also revealed that there are no known evidence-based treatments for imposter phenomenon. Because it often co-occurs with depression and anxiety, providers might recommend treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy for those comorbidities, but that wouldn't specifically treat the imposter syndrome. Bravada recommends group therapy for folks experiencing imposter syndrome to counter a person's belief that they are the only one having imposter feelings. That's one of the tips that Andy Malinsky suggests for coping with imposter syndrome in a 2016 Harvard Business Review article. Remembering that the people around you are also afraid of being found incompetent can help you feel better about your own imposter feelings. He also recommends thinking about the benefits of being a novice. Newcomers to a workplace or classroom can bring fresh perspectives to that setting. Third, he suggests cultivating a learning mindset rather than a performance mindset. With a performance mindset, if you make a mistake, you're going to see it as evidence that you're a fraud. With a learning mindset, mistakes are an inevitable part of the learning process that can help you measure your growth. And to help cultivate that learning growth mindset, one theme through related work was how those in leadership and administration positions can acknowledge that this is something a significant percentage of incoming students or employees might be experiencing. And it's something that can be accounted for in the structure of your organization. Those are great practical tips. We should all be valuing the novice perspective and cultivating learning mindsets, whether in school, at work, or at home. Thanks for helping me understand imposter syndrome a little more, Rachel. 
Of course. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to learn about and discuss these important issues with you. And thank you, listener, for joining us for this episode of Evidence-Based IHP. There are many more episodes to come in season one. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any. Ask us your question, send us your feedback, or pitch an episode by emailing us at podcast at mghihp.edu. Evidence-Based IHP is presented by the Janice P. Bellick Library at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. It is hosted by Amanda Tarbett and Rachel Norton. Our incredible executive producer is Selena Craig. We'd like to say a special thanks to George Sanchez de Lozada and MGH IHP's Office of Information Technology for their technical and financial support of this project. Check the show notes for links to learn more about MGH IHP and follow us on social media.